But this morning, what I want to talk about um, is following on from where I started last week. And I started last week talking about this topic that I've called spirit-led evangelism. And so if you, um, if you want to know where I'm going, I, for the next three or four weeks, I'm still going to be in the same passage because we're going right through it, and it's Luke chapter 10. And so if you want to find Luke chapter 10, uh, that's where we're starting. And I said, we looked at a number of things last week, and one of the things we said is that we would all agree, I think, that we need to be more effective at reaching people. And I, I don't just mean reaching people so we get them to say a prayer and we never see them again in the church. Or, or, we, or we, they might come for a couple of weeks and then fall away. What we want to see is lasting fruit, isn't it? We want to see kingdom growth. And what I said last week is that I think it's exciting that God has done a lot of things over the last, say, 10 years to start mobilizing the church. And we see lots of different things, street evangelism, healing on the street, all, all sorts of different things. And my purpose in talking about this is not to be positive or negative about those. But I do believe that we, for lasting fruit, we need to see how Jesus taught his disciples to do it. Because he's the master, isn't he? He knows how it works. And so I, I, I've been really searching this for, for quite some time now. I've, I've been living in this passage in Luke chapter 11 for something like two or three months now to say, look, how did this work for Jesus? And one of the things that I, I find is that a lot of the things we do in terms of evangelism work for a few people, but are really scary for most of the church. They, they're also, I believe, just aspects of what Jesus told people to do. So they're good, but I don't think they're the full picture. Because I think if we saw the full picture, we would see Cambridge and Haverhill, Ely, wherever else, changed. Because whilst we've got this idea that we live with hard ground, it's not true. Because Jesus said the harvest is plentiful. And Jesus said, Com the labourers are few. And I talked about this last week. And it's not that the problem isn't the number of labourers. The problem is that the labourers aren't going and bringing the harvest in in the way Jesus taught them to. Because when Jesus says the labourers are few, he's talking in comparison to the size of the harvest, which is huge out there. And what we need to remember is that the reality of the kingdom is much bigger than the reality of the enemy's kingdom. And so if we can bring the kingdom to bear, it will change what we see around us. Light will come to darkness. And so I finished up last week by, by look, just got to this phrase that Jesus said, I send you out as lambs among wolves. And we kind of agreed that wasn't too exciting because wolves kind of eat sheep, don't they? But the truth is that wolves don't eat sheep when the shepherd's with them. And the point of what Jesus is saying is not that we should be thinking we're going to get devoured or, or whatever. Jesus is saying, now guys, I'm going to tell you how to make wolves into sheep. I'm going to tell you how we win, how the kingdom grows. Because what he's doing is he's teaching his disciples kingdom principles. Okay, so you're with me. That was a, if you weren't here last week, that's a bit of a precy of where we went last week. But the thing to remember from that is that we exist, we, we live in a bigger reality than the reality we see just with our own eyes. And in that reality that Jesus sees, the kingdom is much more powerful than the defeated kingdom of the enemy. And therefore, the harvest is big. You know, we can, we can look, I mean, I know there's loads of people on holiday and um, soul survivor and all sorts of things at the moment. But we could look at our church and go, well, we're about 130, 140 people, and that's small compared to the size of Cambridge. And Jesus, he said, you're right, because there's a huge harvest out there. And if you can get your eyes on the harvest, you will see what, what I talked about, which is the harvest coming in, that it's plentiful. 
So it's good news that we can that what Jesus is telling us is that there is a harvest out there for us that is massive compared to the amount of numbers we currently have. But we have to send laborers into the harvest. We have to, we have to go. And so that we talked about last week that that needs a work of the spirit on our heart to get us to see that we are on the winning side and not on the losing side. We have to get away from things like, oh, Cambridge is hard ground. Guys, where isn't hard ground? Everybody says that about their town. <coughs> but Jesus says the harvest is plentiful. So, let's go to Luke chapter 11. Sorry, 10. And I'll just read a few verses and then we'll carry on from where we left off last week looking at this passage. We're going to go to a few other passages, but don't worry about that in order to understand what Jesus is saying. Now, after this, the Lord appointed 70 others. Some versions say, after these things. The Lord appointed 70 others, sent them two and two ahead of him to every city and place where he himself was going. And he said to them, the harvest plentiful, the labours of you, therefore... Beseech the Lord of the harvest to send out the laborers into his harvest. Go your ways. Behold, I send you out as lambs in the middle of wolves. Carry no purse, no bag, no shoes. Greet no one on the way. Whatever house you enter, first say or pray, it depends how you translate that word, peace be to this house. If a man of peace is there, your peace will rest upon him. If not, it will return to you. Now, that's what I want us to look at this morning, this phrase pray, about praying peace or saying peace onto somebody's house. That word peace, just so we understand what it's saying, it, it, we can think of it in terms of quiet but, or rest, but it also, um, in, in the original language, means favour, prosperity and blessing. So Jesus is saying, I want you to pray or say blessing to you. I want to pray favour on you. I want you to pray peace. I want you to pray rest. I want that to be how you speak to those who are in the harvest, in the harvest field. Now I think this is really interesting because Jesus is saying, first do this. Yeah, first say, now, why am I making a big thing of that word first say? That word first say, how can I put this? It's in this sense of do and keep on doing. Okay, it's not a one-off. This is our approach to everything, is what Jesus is saying. Because you do this and you keep on doing it because it's first, not only this is the first thing you do, but first in order of priority. So we do and we keep on doing this. And when we do that, there's two aspects that come out. Firstly, it has an effect on us. And it has an effect, according to Jesus, on others, those who aren't in the kingdom yet. And um, so I, I said to God, I, you know, I was talking about this and looking at this. I'm going like, isn't that a really strange phrase? First say, peace to be on your house and where you find this man of peace and it rests and you, you stay and you, you carry on. And we, we tend to skim over that or, or make something out of it that it's not. And what Jesus is doing here, because he's trying to equip his disciples, these 70 to be effective in taking the gospel of the kingdom to others. So he's equipping, he's training them. And this isn't the first time he sent people out, actually it's about the third or the fourth time. And each time he sends people out, whether it's 12 or 70 or 72, he gives them the same instructions. Now, the point of that is, when we look at other passages in the Bible, we have to interpret it through what Jesus told his disciples to do. Because sometimes we just see aspects of what Jesus is telling people to do here and we jump on them as if they're the whole of the picture. 
But Jesus is actually training his disciples to say, this is the way we go about bringing the kingdom. And what he's trying to do is he's trying to align what they do with the ways of the kingdom. He's trying to align their hearts with the ways of the kingdom. Because he knows, and, and we know, that we're carriers of a superior reality called the kingdom. And if we can uh, release that superiority by, by walking in kingdom ways, it will have an effect on overwhelming the kingdom of the enemy. Remember, we, we looked at that word last, last week, power, and it, the word dunamis. And, and basically, a, a simple way of understanding what dunamis means is that it's the ability of the kingdom to overwhelm the inferior reality of the enemy's defeated kingdom. Now, the problem here is we're used to thinking in terms of methods, steps, ways of doing things, systems, formats. Jesus and basically the whole Bible doesn't think in that. So it's, it's requiring of us something that is like a paradigm shift. We have to shift the way we view the reality around us. We have to shift from thinking it's hard ground to the harvest is plentiful. But we also have to shift in terms of thinking in what we're doing isn't a series of principles. It's a, it's, it's a bringing of the kingdom. And this is the way we release the kingdom, the power of, of, of Jesus' kingship, which he already has. We're not trying to give Jesus kingship or establish his kingship. We're trying to release the victory that he has already done, that he has brought to the world. And so... Jesus uses his phrase, peace. First say, peace. Now, the, the shift that that starts to make in us is to look differently at the people we know. People within our circle of influence. Now, we all, we all know people. We work with people, we live with people, we're next door neighbours to people, we socialise with people, we have customers who are people, we have bosses who are people, we have people on the next desk to us who are people. And Jesus is saying, look, the nature of what we're doing here is I want you to shift your mindset. I want you to shift your mindset from thinking about that these people are targets. I want you to shift your mindset from thinking that these are people that somehow we need to get to repent or say a prayer. And he's saying, I want you to think differently about this. I want to, you to think of yourselves as the pastors of the people that you work with, you live with, you know, you socialize with, and you are friends with. He wants to shift our mindset from people who are targeting people to people who see themselves as pastors of their workplace, yeah. as pastors of their class, as pastors of their neighbourhood. And, and when we see ourselves as that, it changes our attitude. Because it moves us from a, an attitude of targeting to a shift in our hearts where we start by caring. And that's what Jesus is trying to do. He's trying to shift his, the, he, you'll see in a minute, he's trying, trying to shift the disciples' attitude because they've actually missed it. They've, they, they've gone off a tangent and got it horribly wrong. And if you remember, do you remember those things at the start of the Sermon on the Mount? Jesus says something, he says something really profound. He says, blessed are the peacemakers... Because they're the ones who'll be called sons of God. And so we get an insight about what he's talking about here. That we need to be children of God. And what we're trying to do is not hit a target. I know that that's hard for the, the evangelists in us. But we're all supposed to evangelise. And this is Jesus' way of doing it. I, I, you know, there's lots of other things that people do, but this is Jesus' way of doing it. So we have to give it a bit of weight, don't we? Yeah. And, and Jesus says, blessed are the peacemakers because they're the ones who are going to be called sons of God. 
Why would he say that? He says that because our job as children of God is to accurately represent the heart of the Father to those who don't know him. And you see, a primary characteristic of a child of God is that you're a bringer of peace. You're a peacemaker. You are not a condemner and you are not a judge. A primary characteristic of a child of God is you're a peacemaker. And Jesus can't say it more bluntly. He said, you know, blessed are the peacemakers because they're the ones who are the sons of God. They're the ones that actually show what the nature of Father God is like. So we can't set our stall out and, and, and apply a method of evangelism that does not have that starting point. Do, do you see what I'm saying? Do you see where I'm coming from? This weird phrase, let, you, let peace be on you and pray peace on the house, we go, you know, most, a lot of the time we just skim over it. And we ignore it or we, we build it in and we say, we've got to find the man of peace. And, and then he'll respond to whatever method we're using. That, that, that's, that's just not what it's talking about. That, that's, you know, when you look at how, what the disciples would have understood by this, it's not what he's talking about. He's talking about an attitude in the person carrying the gospel. You are not trying to find the man of peace. You are trying to bless people with the peace that you carry. Now, why would the disciples understand that weird phrase and we go, no idea what Jesus is talking about? Well, the disciples would understand it because one of the, the, the big failings of the great Jewish king, the, the king of kings before Jesus, David, involves this phrase. It became associated with one of David's big boo-boos. Okay? Now, this is, I'm not going to read the passage, but in 1 Samuel 25, David has, something's already happened. David has been uh, sort of hunted down by this, the, the king Saul, and he has an opportunity to kill Saul, and he doesn't take it, and he says, I'm not going to touch the Lord's anointed, and he lets Saul go, even though he could have taken his life and ended all of his problems, because Saul's trying to kill David, but David won't kill Saul. So David understands that God operates from grace and not judgment. Saul is doing wrong stuff, but David understands that, it, that, that God's heart is carried in with grace. We go on to the next chapter, and this happens. David encounters this guy called Nabal, or Nabal, or whatever. Nabal has a wife called Abigail. And David, when he's hiding from Saul, David's got a big army at this point. He's got lots of people following him. And he goes into the wilderness. And he encounters this guy called Nabal. Now, Nabal, um, you don't want to be called Nabal or Nabal or whatever because his name means fool or idiot in our language. Folly. Now, you know, you don't want your mum to call you that when you're a baby, do you? Idiot. But that's his name. And he has this reputation for a number of things. Firstly, he's rich. He's very, very rich. But only in material terms. Because all the other aspects of his life and who he is are not rich. He's known for being harsh. He's known for being evil. And even his own wife says he's worthless. That's not a good reputation, is it? Does that ring any bells... The, about the way we see the world beyond the church. That it has lots of things, but it's evil and harsh and trying to get us, and we're, we're just being pressed in and that sort of stuff. And that's why this is instructive for us, because Jesus is going to say, remember what happened to David, because I want you to learn a lesson from here. Um, David and his men, while they're in this wilderness, they provide a service to Nabal. They, they basically protect all his flocks. They protect his sheep from all the Philistines who want to come and steal them. And it says that at the end of it, it's, it's sheep shearing season. 
For a sheep farmer, sheep shearing season is the equivalent of harvest. So they bring in the harvest in. And part of that harvest is that the, the person who, who, who's the, the farmer or the landlord, he throws a big party and he's generous and he blesses all the people who've worked for him. So David sends some of his men and he says, uh, you know, we've been working for you all this time. Uh, where's the blessing? Now, Nabal, who is evil and harsh and stupid, sees an opportunity for something for nothing. The world outsiders behaves like that at times. And he knows that David can't do anything about it because he can't go to Saul to state his case because Saul was trying to kill him anyway. So he's got David in the corner. He has what's called in the world competitive advantage. Um, in business, he's got an opportunity that he can exploit. So he basically says, who's David? Never heard of him. I don't know him. Oh, isn't he that rebel that Saul's trying to get? I, oh, it would be wrong of me to bless somebody who Saul's trying to get. And, it, and, and he wheedles out and he basically says, I'm not going to pay you for what you've done. That's not nice, is it? Now, despite that reputation that Nabal has, and despite him being known for he, evil and harshness, in the middle of all that, when David sends his men to Nabal, the greeting he tells them to say is this. He says, long life to you and peace to you, peace to your house, and peace to everything you have and everything you've got. So that's where this phrase, peace be to you, or let, you, let your peace or pray peace over people, comes from. Now, what, what actually happens, and it, I'll cut this story short, is that it all goes horribly wrong. David takes offence, decides that Nabal is worthy of judgment, calls his army and marches them towards Nabal with the uh, idea that he's going to judge them, wipe them out, and th th he feels the, the injustice of it all. And this Nabal's wife, Abigail, comes out and says, Hang on, remember who you are, David. Remember that, and, and she gives him a gift, and she says, this gift should, is to help you remember who you are, that we are about blessing people and not judging people. And David comes up short, remembers who he is, that, that he set out to bless, peace on you, peace on your house, long life to you, that he'd, he'd gone off in, in offence, and it pulls him up short. And he remembers that we give grace and not judgment. Now, in the end, God sorts it all out. And David, happy ended, long story, ends up marrying Abigail, the lady who came to give the gift that was previously married to Nabal. And, but we're not getting into that. But the, the, the principle I want you to see is this. There's two, two aspects of this that feed into what Jesus is saying. The first aspect is this that we are not qualified or worthy to judge. The reason for that is we don't know everything, and God does. Therefore, only he is qualified to judge, because we, can't, we, we don't understand everything about every situation. So we, we can't judge. And if we're going to judge, we should judge ourselves and not somebody else, because we ain't perfect. The second aspect of it is this, is that when we operate in grace and peace, it actually changes things. And that's, that's what Jesus is alluding to here when he's telling the disciples to pray peace. And that's where we start from. Now, why is this really important? Let me just go and, and, and talk a little bit about the kingdom that has the king who's won the victory called Jesus. In Isaiah chapter 9... Jesus is given lots of titles. We say them at Christmas. I don't know why we say them at Christmas, but we do. Have we got those verses, Isaiah 9? Can't remember. There they go. Unto us a child is born. That's probably why we say it at Christmas. Unto us a son is given. And the government will be upon his shoulders. The government, the kingdom, his rule, will be on his shoulders. His name will be Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father. What is he? Prince of 
peace. That's who Jesus is. He is the Son of God and he is the Prince of Peace. We are sons of God, therefore we should, what, carry peace and work from a place of peace. Now look at this. I'd, I'd not seen this until, <laughs> until recently. And we go, and the increase of his government will be without end. Yeah? No, because I'm now putting the verse up, so you've Roger's read it. It's the increase of his government and peace will be without end. You see, what, what this is telling us is there's something about the nature of Jesus that we are meant to see and the nature of the kingdom that government increases as peace increases. You can't separate the two. And so his kingdom operates alongside and by peace. And when we try and operate differently, we will not see the release of the kingdom and we won't see the fruit. Yeah. Now, why is that important? The, the reason it's important is this. <coughs> I think for decades and maybe hundreds of years... Our approach to evangelism has started somewhere completely different to where Jesus starts. Our approach to evangelism has started with, you need to repent because you're a sinner. And, you know, I've seen it time and time again, whether, I've, you know, I've gone out on the streets doing stuff or talking to stuff, and, and we even do it to each other in church. And we have this starting point that you've got to make people feel bad in order that they can appreciate that they need a saviour. And, and I can see, you know, I can go like, I can see the logic of that. That's the problem. The kingdom isn't logic. So time and again, I have seen people be ministered to, be blessed, be healed, and then almost immediately... As that person is opening up and you're building a relationship with them and we go, you're a sinner, you need Jesus, you need to repent. Do you know where you're going tonight if you die? Are you going to heaven if you die? Because you might die tonight. And that's been our reproach. You see, part of us seeing the fruit, part of us seeing this harvest is we have to start where Jesus started. Not just as individuals, but as a body. And, and we need to start seeing this city or Haverhill or Ely or Papworth or wherever you come from as a place that we can bring blessing to, where we are peacemakers, not judges, where we are pastors and not people who carry a message that is negative. Because what I've seen is that that repent or burn message that we carry and we are known for. Guys, we are, we are known for repent or burn outside the church. We don't think we are. We, we, have, we think we're all loving and kind. But when we lead with repentance because you're going to hell if you don't do something about it tonight, I can see the logic of that and we might win a few. But we won't change a city and we won't change a town and we won't change a neighbourhood. And that's what Jesus is about. And, and I understand why we do all that. I've done it myself lots of times. But Jesus is saying you start with blessing. And you keep blessing. It's step one. Now why did Jesus need to do that? Jesus needed to do that because, remember right at the start of this passage, it said after these things, Jesus sent the 70 out. What things? It's kind of important to know what Jesus is doing, isn't it? Okay, this is what Jesus has done. He sent the 12 out. They've had fantastic results in chapter 8. By the time we get to the middle of chapter 9, they've completely lost it, as, as, as the 12 tend to do. And by the end of chapter 9, so immediately before this, what they're doing is they're going... Them guys in Samaria, they didn't like us, Jesus, so we want to call down fire on them like the, uh, like the prophet Elijah did and burn them like the, because of as bad as Sodom and Gomorrah and all the rest of this stuff. So we want to call down fire of, on them, Jesus. We want, we want judgment because they've rejected your message. 
And what does Jesus say? He says, hang on, guys. When you talk like that, you don't realize you're talking with the spirit of the enemy. Because I didn't come to bring judgment, I came to bring salvation and peace. And so this is what he's saying. He's saying, so therefore you've got to start with blessing. You've got to start with peace. You've got to start with caring about the person, loving the person, praying for the person, proclaiming peace over the person, proclaiming blessing over the person, until you get a response. Because the ones you get the response from are the ones where your peace has rested. And too often we rush into this, I've got to get six people saved this week because I've got to have the scorecard I can put on Facebook. And we've just got it so sad. Because we don't operate under a gospel of judgment, we operate under a gospel of grace. And, and unless we accurately represent the heart of the Father to people, we're not even sons of God because we're not showing who he is. And so part of the reason Jesus, we, need a, we need to pull up on this, and, and I was shocked that this is Jesus' starting point. I was just like shocked. It's like, whoa, I never knew that. And I'm going like, why didn't I know that? And I didn't know it because I'd read this superficially and got on doing other things. And I really believe that as we open up this passage, we're going to see something that will produce lasting fruit and we'll mobilize every single one of us because we'll know we can do this as opposed to just a few of us who are particularly gifted in a particular area, words of knowledge or healing or whatever. And, and Jesus is sending out 70 here because he's mobilizing all of them. And we all want to be mobilized. We want to be mobilized as a body. As a body, we need to see ourselves as pastors of where we live. And so we, we as a body, our, all, our whole aim should be to bless and declare peace. And, and our prayer life should be about peace and blessing onto others. Yeah. But we need to declare peace because as Christians, we've been at war with the lost. This, this approach of, I guess, we tend to dislike or fear or feel attacked or feel rejected by people who are in the kingdom. And as a result of that, it produces a reaction in us that, that we want to go to war. We talk about taking the city. Yeah? The city's already Jesus's, it just doesn't know it. See, the, the, the battle's done. We're just about representing the kingdom. And when we represent the kingdom, the harvest is plentiful. And so, you see, Jesus is known as a friend of sinners. So if we're not friends with sinners, and that isn't our heart towards them, I don't mean like... We do that in order to get them into the kingdom. But actually, genuinely, friends, yeah. we're not representing Jesus. Jesus had a reputation for hanging out with the worst. Now, isn't that interesting? Because Jesus is the holiest person who ever walked the earth. And yet we worry that if we hang out with the worst, we'll be less holy and it'll mess us up. And Jesus is saying, no, guys, you've got to make friends with these people because that's where the harvest is. And I want you to know how you turn wolves into sheep. And the way you turn wolves into sheep is blessing the wolves. And, and loving them and being friends with them. You see, in our prayer lives, you know, I, I pulled myself up. Since I started seeing this, I pulled myself up only once or twice. You know, like, we have this prayer life that goes, God, there's all these problems. Basically, just... If you could just sort it out, if you could just take them away, or, or there's, there's this difficult person that lives in my street, and if they weren't like that, you know, God, could you just sort them out? And we, we sit there, and, and we might be having an issue with somebody, and we go and complain to God about that person, and we go, oh, God, that's terrible. Do you know how they behave to me? Don't you understand, God? God, you know, they just, just can you just make them see how bad they are? And Jesus is saying... And it's kind of a, a shock. He's saying, the way to pray about them is bless them. Yeah. God, I thank you. I thank you for that person. I thank you that, that you are uh, somebody who loves them, who cares for them, who wants blessing on their life, who wants favor on their life, who wants prosperity for them, who wants to see them succeed. 
and, and start praying those things. Now, that's a weird thing to do, isn't it? Because it goes against how we feel. But when we do it, it changes how we feel <laughs> till it becomes genuine. And, and Jesus said, when you've got there, I've got you in the right place. Because then I can trust you with the harvest. Because you're accurately representing my heart. Because I hung out with these guys. And, you know, I, I did some work a few years ago for a, a Christian organization. And I did a, a, like a strategy review for them. And one of, the, one of the things that this Christian organization is really known for is what it is against. And when you read the press, what we are known for as Christians in this country is what we are against. We are trying to impose our values on others because we know those values are good values. But in doing so, what we are doing is we're trying, we, we, we are just saying what we're against. We're, we're against this. We're against... Uh, I, I'm not going to list any because it all gets controversial then, doesn't it? But we're against everything. And, and I said, and, and doing this strategy review, I said, one of the things we really need to start doing, guys, is communicating what we're for. You see, we're not carriers of bad news. We are articulators of good news. The gospel is, by definition, good news. It is not a protest vote. We are not witnesses for the prosecution. We are witnesses for the saviour. And therefore, we are not against things. We are promoters of positive things. And the reason we go against things is we forgot that the kingdom is bigger than the things that we're protesting by. And we're trying to put, pull down the negatives without saying, actually, the way they go is to bring the positive, the kingdom. And, and as children of God and children of the, of, of the Father we have, that's what we can do. Now, I, I, was, I remember, like, Quite, yeah, I don't know how long ago, but I was, I was thinking through this and I was having a real rant about somebody to God. I'm not telling you it was, okay? It's nobody in this room. Nobody in this room, but Cheryl's gone home. Uh, <laughs> you know, it wasn't Cheryl. Um, and um, God said, just, let, just, just hang on, son. I'm God. And that person you're talking about I hurt when they hurt. I cry when they cry. They don't know me, but I'm trying to reach them. I'm the God who sends sun and rain on the righteous and the unrighteous together. That's my heart. That's who I am. And son, all you're doing is cutting across me because I love them and you resent them. You see... There's truth. Now listen to this, it's really important. Truth is really important. You cannot change truth. Truth is a standard. And we aspire to walk in truth. And Jesus said, if you know the truth, the truth will set you free. So we want truth. But Jesus didn't come to bring truth. The Bible says that Jesus came full of grace and truth. Pardon? Okay, I'm not preaching your message. But this is the point. It's really important how you preach truth. Preaching the truth without love is like giving somebody a good kiss when you've got really bad breath. <laughs> Truth becomes repulsive if it's not wrapped in love and grace. That's why Jesus was full of grace before he was full of truth. Truth, preached without love, is like giving somebody a good kiss when you've got really bad breath. You see, when we... When we speak, when we bless people, and when we come with that 
attitude of peace and blessing, then we also stop cursing. You can't do both. And we need to wake up that we are actually in a reality that is spiritual and not physical. And what we do has spiritual effects because we're carriers of this reality called the kingdom. We introduce the kingdom by what we say, what we do, how we act. So when we release blessing, we can't also be released cursing. And that's really important because it's like a principle of, you know, an enduring principle that, that Solomon, that great wise person, put in Proverbs. So Proverbs 11 um, has this phrase in it. The city, Cambridge, Averhill, Ely, Papworth, wherever you live, <coughs> so um, where else are we going for? Swavesey, yeah, we'll go for Swavesey. Littleport, all, the, all these places, Ghana, Accra. <laughs> the city is exalted by the blessings of the upright. The city... So what Solomon here is doing, he's saying there is a spiritual effect, a reality that comes about when you do these things. And when you bless, it builds up a community. But when, by the mouth of the evil, when you curse, it's torn down. And so he said, understand that when you are not blessing, you are cursing. Now, what, what, what's the issue here? Let's translate that into New Testament terms. Why, why is that an issue? Now, if you remember, Jesus said, this is, a deep, this is my deep bit for this morning. Jesus said, all authority has been given to me on earth, under the earth, and above the earth. And then he said, I'm giving you that authority, so I'm delegating it to you so you can operate in it, because I'm off to heaven. And, and you're, you're the guys that are going to do it. So we're the, we're the authority carriers. Now, what happens? When we curse, when we judge, when we, 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 we have rants about the negative and so on, what we are doing is we are coming into and empowering the ways of the enemy. When we bless, we are coming into agreement with and empowering the ways of the kingdom. So it's really important because we are the authority carriers that we are coming into agreement with the right kingdom. And, and, and the, the big thing here is we're not doing this deliberately. We, we've got so accustomed to it, it's become natural. Yeah. Now, let me, let me expand that because this is, this is the real key thing. Why is it so important we operate from peace and not lead with repent or burn <laughs> or judgment? And wh why is it so important that we don't see the world out there as evil attacking us, but we see ourselves as pastors wanting to bless. Yeah. What, how, how do we make that turnaround? Why is it so important? It's so important because of this. What is the opposite of peace? Discord. Any more? War, disunity, anger, strife, envy, jealousy. That's the opposite of peace, isn't it? Yeah? Now, just so you can see what it, it looks like here. What's the opposite? When we operate in the opposite of peace, which a lot of our evangelism methods do and a lot of the way we operate as individuals do and as bodies, and this is like, I'm horrified by the time I get to this point. It's like God's just opening this up to me. I'm going, oh my goodness, I, wow, I've really messed up for 30 years, God. And what, what's the effect when... We empower the enemy. I can't remember who it was. Um, this, the conference we went to last week, somebody was, was talking about how, uh, I think it's rattlesnakes or whatever, how when, there's a, when, there's a, um, when the building is solid, um, they've got nowhere to live. But when there's bricks missing out of the wall or gaps in the wall, they tend to go in there and live in holes in walls. And this is like letting in a snake to live in the hole in our wall when we, we, we live like this and when we do these, the opposite of peace. We're letting rattlesnakes in. And, and what do rattlesnakes do? Kill, poison, 
The, well, the rattle, yeah, good point. Okay, sometimes, sometimes the leadership here can get really basic. <laughs> good point, Roger. Right, now what happens? Let, let me show you a few things. Let's think about what those opposites of peace are. Psalm 133, verse 3 says this. Behold how good and pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. For there the Lord commands a blessing of life forevermore. So what happens when it's disunity and discord? God isn't commanding a blessing because we are not in agreement with his kingdom. He won't bless where we're not in agreement with his kingdom. Yeah? Let's have a look at Ephesians 4. Because this is really instructive. It's a passage I've talked about lots of times. Ephesians 4, verse 26, 27, says this. Well-known passage. Be angry and don't sin. Do not let the sun go down on your wrath. Now, I want you to see that. It's not sinful to be angry. <laughs> Some people say angry is witchcraft. No, it's not. But what you have to do with anger is deal with it and seek peace and reconciliation and not sin as a result of it. What's the effect when you let your anger turn to sin? You put a hole in the wall that the rattlesnake comes into. You give place or you give an opportunity to the devil. You have come into agreement with his kingdom and therefore you've given him an opportunity to... Um, You've empowered him to bring about his purposes. You forgot that you've got this much bigger kingdom and you've empowered the kingdom of the enemy. So you're working against yourself by doing this. Now, what, what, he goes on to say this. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Now, who doesn't want to grieve the Holy Spirit? Okay, that, that's good. We sometimes think, and because we're crazy... We sometimes think, like, we, if we choose the wrong worship songs, we grieve the Holy Spirit. Or if we come and we, we, we're thinking about Sunday dinner in the middle of the preach, not that any of you would be doing that at this moment, <laughs> we, we think that that's, that, that's, that's grieving the Holy Spirit. No, this is grieving the Holy Spirit. All bitterness, wrath, anger, clamour, evil speaking, be put away from you with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as Christ forgave you. The two kingdoms have different characteristics. And when we empower the other kingdom, not only do we give place or an opportunity or a hole in the wall for the snake to come in and, and let him run and, and ca cause his things, in forgetting that, that our kingdom is bigger than the, the defeated kingdom of the enemy, what we're doing is we're getting the Holy Spirit off the scene as well. So it has a twofold effect. It empowers the enemy and gets the Holy Spirit off the scene. So when we lead with repent or burn and judgment and anger and bitterness and, and thinking bad of people and looking down on people and things, what are we doing? We're letting the enemy in. He gets the kingdom. His kingdom grow. He grows in the city and the Holy Spirit is off the scene. So we are not empowered. So we can do all sorts of things to try and reach people and, bless, and, and, and get people, but it's not effective. And that's why we, we, we've got this conundrum that we put massive effort in for so few people actually making it to a regular place as part of a body of Christ. And you, you don't get there by dismantling the body of Christ or attacking the body of Christ or attacking your church. You get there by building the church up, being part of it, being kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, and modelling it and showing the heart of God to each other so that when we go out of here on Monday morning, we are so seeped in that that we can take that culture and show the heart of the Father to the world. Are you with me? Right. Just going to finish off with one passage from James, and I'm going to show you the, the, how the, the power of what Jesus is saying, why it's so important this is for. Are you, have, you, have you got why it's important that this is how we think and why? So now we just need, we need to think like this, don't we? And, and pull ourselves up when we empower the enemy. Yeah. So here we go. James, very different person from Paul. Paul's the guy that wrote Ephesians. James, uh, brother of Jesus. He's, he's, quite, he's quite focused. He's, a, he's an up and at them, 
let's do it sort of person. And it's all about doing it for him. Because he's going like, okay, I've got all that, now I'm going to do it. Now, this is, this is what he says in, in writing to the church he's writing at. So this is James chapter 3. And in verses 9 and 10, he says this. And he's talking about the bad effect that your tongue, like oh, opening your mouth. We, um, we were arranging our insurance uh, this week, and we were dealing with uh, this insurance agency in Preston, which is where we come from. And we were shocked by the, the accent that came back at us, and we got like, man, didn't we used to talk about that? So basically what James is talking, he's talking about this power of the tongue, but if you're a northerner, he's saying, shut your gob. Okay? Shut your gob. Think about what's coming out of your mouth. And this is what he says, because with it we bless our God and Father, and with it we curse men. Think about what's coming out. He's saying what, we, what comes out has an effect. Who have been, and, and these men have been made in the image of God. You might not like them, but they've been made in the image of God. So out of the same mouth proceed blessing and cursing. And he's saying, my brothers, that shouldn't be. Out of that same mouth shouldn't be coming blessing and cursing. There should only be blessing. That's a really sobering lesson, isn't it? Now, see what he goes on to say and why this works and why this is so powerful and why this is where we lead from in evangelism. Let me ask, before I just finish off here, how many of you think that wherever you are, in your workplace, in the university, in your class, in your neighbourhood, in your area, how many of you think that you can pray blessing and speak blessing over everybody who is around you and you can start to think of yourself as their pastor? So is this possible for everybody? It's not scary, is it? This is your prayer life. This is, this is what you're declaring over your workplace. When you walk in your workplace, you walk in and go, this is a place that is blessed. This is a place that's going to prosper. This is a place that God is going to show us strategies. God, show me a strategy for how this place can get better. Show me a strategy for how to talk to my boss so I can give him some of your wisdom for how this place is going to prosper and how this place is going to walk in favour. And, and we can do that, and we can do that every day. This is really, really practical, which is why Jesus showed us it, because he's a really, really practical saviour. Now, what, watch what James says, and remember he's talking about whether we bless or curse, whether we speak peace or whether we declare it. So let's just go on a few verses, verse 14. If you've got bitter envy and self-seeking in your hearts, don't boast and lie against the truth. So that's opening up the wall for the snake, remember? This wisdom doesn't descend from above, so what's making you do that, that thought process you're going through to get you there, that however rational it might seem to kick back against somebody who's hurt you, however, however you, you feel like you, there's injustice or unrighteousness or unfairness, he's saying that wisdom that gets you to the point where you act in envy, self-seeking, boasting, lying and all the rest of it, that wisdom doesn't come from God. It's demonic. Remember? Defeated kingdom of the enemy wants empowering, so it's trying to get you into agreement with it, and that's the way we come into agreement with it. For where there is envy and self-seeking, confusion and every evil thing are there. How do we let the kingdom of the enemy thrive? Envy, self-seeking, lying, Judging, bitterness, that's, and, and, and that's, that's to the world outside, but it's also within our own body. We don't want rattlesnakes in this room, do we? So we, we, we don't want self-seeking, it's all about me behaviour, because it lets the rattlesnakes in the room. And the rattlesnakes have this habit of not just biting the one that brought them in, they bite everybody. So the wisdom that's from above is first pure, then peaceable, so it's pure, like 100% proof. Next quality, peaceable, gentle, willing to yield, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality, without hypocrisy. Now, this is why this isn't just like a bland play piece on them and where the man of peace is, then you can go and hit them. Okay? This is spiritual power 
We've, we, we've got to get the spiritual reality of what we're talking about here. This is spiritual power. And James is saying, now the way this spiritual power works, by coming into agreement with the kingdom, by accurately walking in the heart of the Father, purity, peace, gentleness, willing to yield, full of mercy, good fruit, without partiality, not being a hypocrite, what does it do? This isn't a throwaway comment. It says, now it produces fruit, real fruit. What fruit does it produce? It produces righteousness in those who you're behaving that way towards. It changes the hearts of unbelievers to believers. It produces, turns unrighteousness to righteousness. It turns wolves to sheep. And how does it do it? It does it by you sowing the seed of the kingdom. Everything works on seeds, doesn't it? You sow the seed of the kingdom. How do you sow the seed of the kingdom? In peace. Wrapped in peace. The seed of the kingdom. You know, there's, we, we surround, our house is surrounded by farm fields. And, it, and the farmer, like for months and months, spends all his time preparing those fields to get them ready to plant in. And then he, he sows, and he, he, he sows in such a way that he's a skillful farmer so it doesn't go to waste. Yeah? So in the same way, in the kingdom, we would prepare the field by praying blessings, speaking blessings, declaring blessings, declaring favour, declaring prosperity, making that part of our prayer life individually and corporately. We prepare the field and then we sow the seed by blessing the person. And when we sow the seed in blessing and peace rather than repent and burn, we don't, we, we're sowing it carefully into the ditches that we have dug as opposed to scattergun so it goes all over the path and the enemy steals it. We're planting the seed. The way we sow it is in peace. The result of that, the good field preparation and the sowing is that we produce righteousness from unrighteousness, sheep from wolves, good from bad. It's simple, isn't it? We, but we have to start making a shift to thinking kingdom and not just the reality we see in front of us. Because this is what Jesus sees. When he says the fields are ripe for harvest, he's seeing that if we can do this, he can trust us with the harvest because we're accurately representing the Father. Have they, I think the musicians are going to minister to us and got us to sing. So if they could come up, because I, I just want to make one final comment while they're getting ready. That might all seem a bit esoteric, but Jesus says something even more stunning in one place. When you think about what he said, he said, where that peace rests upon somebody, stay there. Have you thought through what that means? means this, that it rests upon somebody. It's tangible. There is a spiritual force that people can feel. When I was uh, a student, people used to say, oh, well, you know, I, they, they, they'll see Jesus in you and they'll want what you want. They'll want to be like you. They'll want to know what you've got. I think that there's truth in that. But I think they don't want what we've got because we aren't so different anymore. <coughs> they don't know we're different because we're not walking in peace. We're not blessing them. We're not caring for them. We're not loving them. We repent or burn them. Mm. We're judging them. We're fearing them. We see them as opposition. We see them as targets. And you know what? They know and they ain't interested. They're, they're, they're not interested in being a mark on your scorecard. They'll say your prayer, but they ain't coming back next week. Because they know that we're giving them a good kiss with bad breath. See, the peace of Jesus, he says it passes understanding. He says it rests upon people. That means 
reposes, resides, comes to live, comes to stay. It's not like a temporary touch. People can feel it when you are, uh, have an attitude of blessing and peace towards them. And it changes their heart because they can actually feel it. There's a spiritual power that is released by doing it. And that's why Jesus says, do this first, because it opens them up to opening their life up to you. And when they open up their life to you, you have a right to speak into their life because they're welcoming it. And so Jesus said, this first step of peace and love and grace is important because it what makes what everything else happens permanent. And this is what opens people up. Not a message of judgment, but a message of peace and good news. Amen? Amen. Amen.